turn it up. You're listening to the Marketing Millennials Podcast. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. Get ready, because we're taking you on a journey with today's marketing leaders and tomorrow's top stars. Let's go! No BS, just a fun, unfiltered industry conversation with the game changers behind some of the coolest companies from around the globe. The one request we tell our guests. Stories or didn't happen. A big welcome to our marketing fam. Prepare to turn them Welcome back to the Marketing Millennials. If you're liking the podcast, please hit the subscribe button. Today, I get the pleasure to talk to one of my favorite marketers. She is a Forex founder. She has been named top 20 Wonder Woman of SaaS marketing and growth. She has been featured in Forbes, USA Today, HuffPost, and, and much more. And she is the founder and CEO of Customer Camp. I'm pleased to welcome Caitlin Burgoyne to the show. Welcome, Caitlin. Thank you for having me, Daniel. I always feel so awkward when people read my bio because I'm like, those things sound very impressive, but there's always backstories. It's not as impressive as it sounds, but yeah, I'll take it. You know what? Actually, one of my favorite things you you say before I get into it is you have like some tweets out there about how, and a lot of people don't talk about this on social media, is the grunt work that takes and in, goes into marketing. And it's so like, and all these failures, like, I think we need more of that in social media of like, like people say consistency and effort, but what is consistency and effort? Yeah. I mean, I like to talk about it. It's friggin' hard, right? And it's like when things work, sometimes it just feels like magic. And I think that there's, if you've been part of big successes and also big failures, then you can see that the effort and the strategy and a lot of, a lot of times the work that went into both, there's not that big of a difference between the two. What's often the difference is, you know, the the market, the people that you were selling to, them understanding the value of what you were doing and you understanding them. And so I think that there's a lot of marketers out there, particularly in the high growth world of startups and, you know, direct consumer companies and all these big companies that love to tout all the successes. But, you know, there's so much so many struggles that lead to one big win. So I think we should talk more about that because I think a lot of marketers probably struggle with feeling like they're not quite performing, but it's just that everyone's showing their highlight reel. That's so true. And well well said, I think a lot of them are showing this highlight reel. And I think like when you get to the real, I think one thing that I love about what you do is like the authenticity of like just tweeting out like, yeah, hey guys, I had a bad day today. It was tough. And not thinking that everything's just all pretty on the outside, like which is great to see. For me, it's like good for my mental health because there's this expectation, you know, I do quite a bit of speaking and I still get really nervous before I speak. And I'm, you know, I'm somebody who has anxiety and that comes out like when I'm going on stage, I'm like literally almost peeing my pants. <laughs> like, <laughs> And I think for me, by me being able to tell people when I'm nervous, I'd be able to say, yeah, I've got anxiety about this. It reduces that fear of, you know, like, what if I'm really anxious? It's like, okay, I'm just going to tell people. <laughs> like, And that way, if something, you know, if I have a like moment of fear or whatever it's not that it's unexpected because I kind of pre-shattered it so I think that for me it's just like I don't know setting expectations making myself feel more comfortable but I do think that being able to talk about the things that are going well and also the things that aren't 
is really critically important for your peers so that they can see that it's not always roses and not everyone has their shit together. I want to go a little bit on your journey in marketing. Like, how did you come to this founding this customer camp, but also like, what were the steps before? Like, what was the journey to get to this point? So I did not ever expect to end up here. And what I'll tell you is that like, I graduated high school, went to university, did an English degree, thought business was boring, never had any intention to be in the business world. You know, four years later, I have an expensive piece of paper and I'm like, do I want to be a teacher? Do I want to teach English as a second language? Like how the hell am I going to use this thing? And I was serving at a restaurant and I had a really great boss and she was a young entrepreneur, incredibly inspiring. And she said, you know, you're good with people and you're good at writing. Have you thought about PR? And I said, I don't even know what that is. (laughs) And she said, public relations. And I was like, Uh, no, I haven't thought about that, but I started looking into it, learned a little bit about that industry and saw that there was a graduate program that I could do and not knowing what direction I should take in the, in life. I was like, okay, I guess I should go back to school and got into PR, did a, did a program and immediately fell in love with the marketing side of things and the, and the advertising world. And it was like, how is this, this world that I'm so excited about and so obsessed with that prior to being exposed to it, I thought was slimy and boring and all suits and spreadsheets. And so graduated from that program, got a job at, you know, my dream job at an agency, was working there for, I think, four months on a contract. It was a contract position. I didn't know if they'd hire me full time. And out of the blue, somebody reaches out to me who had found me on Twitter. And at that point, I was not active on Twitter. I might have posted once or twice, but I had built my own little website showing some of the freelance work I had done for my husband's company and a couple other friends who had hired me to do some marketing and design work for them. And he reached out and he said, I just sold my agency, but I've got two big clients and I want to create a creative collective where I would have you join as a solo freelancer, but I would guarantee you 20 hours a week of work. And it would be kind of like this in between of having your own business, but at the same time, having a client you could rely on. And I was like, that's interesting and also scary because I have four months of experience. (laughs) Like, And I'm thinking about going off on my own, but I took the leap and I started my first company, which I then grew from, you know, a freelance business into a marketing and branding agency. Within three years, we were working with clients like Target and Holiday Inn, and I had a, you know, small but stealthy team. And that was really how I got into marketing. It was a couple of recommendations from smart people and me actually following them and then just discovering I was in love with that world. And kind of fast forward, I started at a restaurant consulting company that we did all the marketing for. And then I brought in some different partners, sold that company, decided to start a tech company, thought that I wanted to do something more scalable than selling my time, had a lot of pain in that world. Things looked really good from the outside. We were growing quickly. Forbes and Inc. were calling us the next LinkedIn, but that did not work out. Kind of failed at that, ran out of money, decided what am I going to do next in life? And that's kind of what leads to customer camp. So my 
lead investor in my tech company. They came to me and they said, okay, you were good on the marketing side of running your company, but you weren't so good on the product side, which was not a surprise to anybody because our product was janky as hell. I was not, I, that was a piece that I did. I was not strong at. And we've got all of these amazing teams that we've invested in who have incredible products, really smart teams, not so great on the marketing side. So could you just work with some of them? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I would love to. And so I started working with all of these teams and I would go into their boardroom and I'd sit down at the table and I'd say, tell me about your customers because as a marketer, that's the most important thing you need to know. And I was surprised how often they couldn't really give great answers. They either didn't exactly know who their customers were. They'd kind of go back and forth on, well, I think that these, this is the most important persona for us or like, no, we're actually going after this industry or it was just really broad. It was like, you know, we're going after internet companies with anywhere between 10 and 500 employees. And so that was an indication to me that there was just this disconnect between companies that had all of the right materials to be able to do great things, but just didn't understand who they were doing them for. And that's what led me to start doing some work on helping people understand their audience better. It what led me to discovering Jobs to be Done, which is a innovation framework and a way of understanding why people buy that has been really foundational for me and how I do my work today. And so a lot of it was kind of this rolling journey to get to Customer Camp. But what we do at Customer Camp now is we help people to better understand who their audience is, to really understand what why that audience buys through in-depth customer discovery and customer research. And we do that primarily through training and workshops, but also through consulting as well. We don't do a lot of consulting projects as of yet because we just don't have a lot of capacity, but we're working on growing that and taking on more and more done-for-you research projects in the new year. Now, that is a journey. I love like hearing like nonlinear and failures and how it got you to the point you are today. I want to ask you, because this is like your really expertise and like, what are some ways to like deeply understand your audience? Because I think what one point that you just said, which is hilarious to me is like, and it's so true is like people think deeply understanding your audience is okay. I'm going after tech companies with, this many employees, but what goes into like the actual picture of understanding your customer and your Yeah. Audience? So for me, the absolute best way. So even like with my tech company, we knew exactly who we were going after. Like we were so clear on that, but we didn't know why they bought. And that led us to build the wrong thing. Like we thought we knew, but we didn't really know. And so even though we knew exactly who they were, it didn't help us get to the right outcome. So you need to know not only who are you going after, but you have to understand what's going to make your solution desirable to them. And so the absolute best way I've found for doing this, of course, there are a lot of different techniques that you can you can employ. But the one that for me has been every single time you walk away with aha moments is talking to people who have actually bought either from you directly, of course, that's going to be the best, or who have dropped, bought from a direct competitor or have used a different solution to solve the same problem that you solve. Because when you actually talk to people who have bought, you're not just talking to people who have lots of opinions and who can share those opinions liberally. You're talking to people who have actually taken out their wallet and paid to solve a problem that you solve. And you will get so much insight into what's going on in their head, what 
what motivated them to begin the buying journey in the first place, how they thought about a solution, what trade-offs they were willing to make in choosing one solution over another. There's so much rich insight that comes from that conversation, but you really have to make it a conversation. You have to learn how to interview in such a way that you help people remember the details of that buying journey. Because we as consumers don't spend an enormous amount of time thinking about why we buy things. We might think that we're all rational and all of our decisions are being made on logic, but in honestly, like all the studies show that 95% of decision-making is made by unconscious emotional triggers. So there's all this stuff happening in the background of our animal brains that is leading us towards purchases. And until you sit down with somebody and you help them extrapolate that information out of their own mind, they don't understand it fully either. And so you just can't get that those answers by you know, doing a survey, asking a few high-level questions, listening in on a sales call, all of those methods are okay. And they're certainly a lot better than not engaging with customers at all. But if you really want to understand them, the one-on-one interview with buyers is bar none, the absolute best method. That's awesome. I I have a question on that because I, I want to know, like, how do you get to that point of like getting, tapping into their unconscious mind but also like not biasing the conversation um that's a great question because i think a lot of times the the bias comes in there and you kind of bias like you you ask a question like you saw an ad right and Mm -hmm. it's like what if that wasn't like some people will be like not remember and say yes i just i'm interested in like what are those questions that pull in that that unconscious like thought process they that they seen well what i would say is that it's certainly by no means a perfect science. Like it would be so great if you could scan somebody's brain and pull out all of the details without having to rely on them to narrate it (laughs) because they're often unreliable narrators. But what I will say is that there are techniques that you can learn and you're going to get better the more and more you try it. And the important thing is asking them for specific details about what they did versus like, you know, their opinions about things and asking them questions to help trigger their memory. So for instance, if you're asking about a purchase, you might say, okay, so when did you buy this item? And they'll give you a date and you go, okay, what was interesting? to you about it. You ask them a couple what I call easy questions or like icebreaker questions just to kind of get them comfortable with talking. You don't want to make it hard for them to kind of give you those answers. And then once you're starting to build a bit more rapport and they're getting more comfortable with the process, then you start asking some questions that are going to trigger their memory. So like, okay, like what was the weather like that day? Do you remember? Like, was it raining? Was it nice? Like, and, and where were you when you made the purchase? Like, did you go into the store? Did you make it online? And you start to gather more of those details and they don't always remember everything. And they might just say, yeah, I don't really know. And that's okay. But oftentimes as you continue the conversation, they'll go, oh, wait, go. I want to go back. Like when I said this, now I'm actually remembering it was because of this conversation I had with a coworker. And it's like, oh, okay. And so you, they'll start piecing it together more and more. But part of it is how you, how you kind of orient them to what the conversation is going to be. Because most people have never had a conversation like this before. We've all done those terrible phone surveys from our you know, cable company or our cell phone company where there's going to be the, five, the same seven questions. They're not going to ask any follow-up. They're going to, you know, that's what people are expecting oftentimes when you ask them to do an interview. And so 
I think orienting them and explaining, I'm going to ask you a lot for a lot of details, some things you might remember, some things you might not, that's okay. And at points I might sound a little repetitive. I might kind of like dig in on an answer and I'm really just trying to hear it all in your own words. It's almost like I'm a a detective and I'm putting together the whole journey so I can understand how it happened. And when you kind of give them that context, they are more comfortable going into it and they will reveal more details. And at that same time, there are people who are going to be open books. They're going to share very intimate details with you about particular things that were going on in the background. And there are people that might not be comfortable sharing that. And they're going to kind of leave things out or describe their reasoning in ways that may not exactly be truthful. But again, until we have some type of software that allows us to like dig into a person's brain and see their memories play out. I think it's a far superior method than other methods that people use. That's so awesome. I, I'm going to steal some of these tips right now. But the next question I would have is like, so you've had these in-depth conversations with these customers and you figured out all these details, like how do you make that actionable? So what's great about it is like they are telling you where they go to look for things. They're telling you who they trust. They're telling you what resources they relied on to help make decisions. So you're learning about the channels that they buy from. You're learning about the influencers in their life. They're learning about the objections that they might have had prior to buying. So as a marketer, this is why like I initially, when I started learning about this, a lot of the work that had been done on understanding the buying journey and like jobs to be done. A lot of the stuff that I'm talking about comes out of work being done by Bob Moesta and his team, things that he's developed. And so a lot of the work comes from that world. And it's been used for a number of different applications, oftentimes in the product world. So people are taking this insight and they're using it to make better product decisions, which you can certainly apply it to that. For me, as a marketer, it's just gold because they're basically writing my marketing plan for me. Because when you have enough conversations and you start to spot the patterns, it becomes clear to you what you should prioritize in terms of channels and what messages might work and what types of people might be a good fit for your product versus which ones aren't than if you were to just kind of look at high level information. So almost everything you're hearing, if you are in the world of marketing, it's like, it's just like they're drawing you a map of how to sell to them. So there's lots and lots of juicy details that will come out of the call. And it's really about how do I then strategize what I want to act on and which like you might hear, I watched a lot of YouTube reviews before I decided to buy this thing. And it's like, okay, well, obviously, if we're going to do some type of sponsored thing or some type of affiliate program, we should be looking at popular YouTubers in our space, or maybe we should be buying ads on YouTube. And so like, it starts to give you signals and clues as to where you want to be with your messages and who, how you want those messages to come across. You talking to customers as well, like, do you, do you talk to the people who got close to purchasing and didn't purchase at all and like why they didn't make that purchase and what roadblocks they had to do that because i feel like that has a wealth of 
knowledge that people don't capture as well. You know what? In the projects I've done for my internal purposes and for clients, I haven't really explored that audience, but you're absolutely right. Like I've talked to people who canceled. I've talked to people who recently bought. I've talked to people who are earlier in the buying journey where they're still just narrowing down their choice set. But I haven't actually talked to people who, you know, maybe made it through, watched a demo or walked in the store, looked around, didn't buy. I haven't actually done interviews with that audience and they would give you a wealth of knowledge too. And I think the reason I haven't is because the projects I've been working on haven't really called for that. But absolutely, absolutely. There would be a wealth of knowledge from people who got down the road with you and decided to go in a different direction. And the reason why I say that is like, I see a lot in when I see customers come through like the buying funnel, especially at the companies I've been at, and you hear like, it becomes common themes of like why they didn't buy, like whether it's a feature you don't have, right? Or Mm -hmm. it's a pricing issue. The messaging on your website, they thought it was for a enterprise customer and you're actually serving SMBs or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's so many like little nuances that, and I think like a lot of them think it's problems in the sales cycle, but a lot of time is actually like how marketers placed and worded and messaged mm-hmm. that item or that product to the end user, um, which I see I think a lot you're of absolutely problem. right. I think that oftentimes with that particular audience, it's they might be a bit, little bit more difficult to capture depending on the business model you're talking about. So if it's you know a web visitor and they're about to leave, you could always do a pop-up where you ask them, you know, like if you didn't buy today, why? Hopefully you can capture their contact information that way. If they are in your, you know, they're in a sales sequence because they've shown interest in something and you can see their activity. Like, I think that that audience can sometimes be a smidge trickier than people who have already bought from you or people who have left. But I think you're absolutely right. And they're in a lot of cases, if you're question isn't around how do I figure out like, you know, how to improve awareness and generate more demand. And your questions are more around, are we properly positioning our products? And do people get the value? Is our value obvious? Um, You know, one of the best marketers who talks about this topic is April Dunford and her book, Obviously Awesome, is just a, it's a Bible for marketers, but oftentimes that is the problem. It's not that they can't find you or it's not that they don't have a pain that you could solve. It's that they don't get why you're the solution. So I think you're right. I think that that's something that in the projects I've done, hasn't. that's never kind of been like the business pain that we've been solving. But I think for a lot of companies, if you're getting traffic and that traffic isn't converting, talk to people, like understand why. Another note I want to say is like, you talked about like the strategies that they plan for you, but like, how do you take the actual like words they say and use it in your marketing strategy. So there's a lot of incredible copywriters that do this really well. And I would say that I've leaned on some of their influence for this. Oftentimes when it comes to gathering that 
voice of the customer or customer language. When I do an interview, I will record the interview with the, with the customer's permission. And then you can have that transcribed and you can go through and you code it. And I do this whether or not I'm doing, I don't typically do copywriting projects, but I know a lot of copywriters who do interviews with the explicit intent of using them on in sales copy. And they'll go through and they'll code it. And so when somebody talks about, you know, I was really frustrated by this, or I was really excited about that, they'll code it, you know, like that was like, delight in the product or like, you know, the pain and you'll kind of categorize the different sections of the copy. And then when you look at writing your marketing material, you know what objections you're going to have to help people overcome. You know what type of wording is going to be really compelling. And so what I do, I don't do a lot of copywriting projects myself, but when I am doing these interviews or when I'm, I do a lot of um, online scanning too. So like you'll look, go to places where people are talking about your topic or, or your product category, and you can just pull out the most incredible language. When my husband with his new business, he launched a new product and we are creating like these date night meal kits. So if you're at home having a date night, this like everything is ready to go. You bring it, it's all ready to grill barbecue. And so we had a customer who commented when we put up our promotion that we're saying we're doing these meal kits. And he said like charboys and chill, like Netflix and chill. And I was like, that's so genius. Like that's such good language. And so oftentimes I'll see that language and I'll kind of like pluck it out and use it in the materials that we're writing. But if you hire a writer who uses this process and there's lots of great ones out there, then they will explicitly go through and they will code all of the transcripts from their interviews and pull that customer language and it writes almost all of the copy for them. So I don't do as many copywriting projects myself, but the copywriters I know who use this method, it's like all of the words are coming from those transcripts. It's all, it's all customer language. I'm interested. What is like the, the tool you use to scan these places that people are talking? So the like that's just my eyes. Like I just okay, go into I, places and I'll well, I will often do if I'm in a forum or let's say I'm in a Facebook group. If I'm in a Facebook group, I'll just search the Facebook group for keywords that are relevant to me or to the client. And if I'm like reading a th- like a bunch of threads or a conversation, again, I'll do like command F and kind of like search for things that might be relevant to me. But there are, there's a tool that had existed. I don't know if it's still being used or not, but it was called Grouply, I believe. And it allowed you to basically monitor a number of Facebook groups. So let's say that you sell, what would be an example? And then like the keto space, right? There's probably like at least 10 Facebook groups with tens of thousands of people in them. So if you make a, maybe you make a keto cauliflower crust or something. This is an example I use in one of my workshops. Like you, the, with the Grouply tool, you can actually monitor all of these groups for the words cauliflower or cauliflower crust, and you'll get notified when people are talking about it. And then you can go in and what they're, see what they're saying. Also a really op- awesome opportunity to ask if you're doing market research, you know, would they be open to a conversation? Because these are clearly people who are trying the product or buying different products. That product, I know the developer had been working on it. I had tried it way back when I was using it for a client project. I don't know if he's still actively taking on new customers or not. Boy, I was just wondering. I, I thought that was like cool. I, I do scanning with my eyes too. So I just want to know if there was a more efficient way of doing it, but that's that's awesome. What do you think are the biggest benefits of having happy customers? Well, I mean, today especially. I mean, I think that there was a time and you know, maybe the golden days of marketing where 
you could spend a certain amount of money and you could get a certain amount of eyeballs and that eyeball was those eyeballs would convert into customers right like there was a time where ads were a lot more affordable than they are today where there's a lot less competition and today it's really the reality is that anybody can buy anything they want almost any time and so what is going to be more compelling to them is it going to be doing a google search and finding, you know, whatever the top ranking pages for X item or X service, there's going to be reaching out to their network and saying, hey, I'm looking to buy a new pair of headphones or, hey, I'm looking to hire a copywriter. Does anybody know anybody? And the rec- like referrals today still, the stat, I'm, I might butcher this, so we might have to double check it, but like 65% of new business comes from referrals today. Still, like even with all of the modern like you know tools that marketers have, word of mouth is still the most effective channel. And so if you have happy customers who you're servicing well, who get the value of what you do, who you've created a great experience for, they are your most effective sales team. And where a lot of companies make mistakes is that they really focus on acquisition of customers. And then whether they sell a product they only sell once or whether they sell a product that they want people to buy month over month or buy often, they don't invest enough time into maintaining those happy customers and making sure that those people become loyal followers of their tribe. And that's really where marketing becomes easier because you've got more people doing the work for you. Yeah, and it's there's like crazy stats how it says like it's harder, way harder to acquire a new customer than keep an existing customer. Um, totally. I want to also go into subject of like how do you keep on learning about like customers and channels and tools? Like how do you stay up to date with all this stuff? Honestly, my favorite way of staying up to date with what's going on and my favorite way of learning is Twitter. So there's not a lot of, not about customers. When it comes to learning about customers, I've got like a lot of different books that I'm reading, that I've read and that I would recommend. Contagious is an amazing book. Um, another one that was really good is Alchemy by Rory Sutherland. Like, so I'm in the good. Pro- so it's good. So good, right? I'm reading one right now and it's called Spent. And it's about kind of like the like primal reasons why we buy. And the author basically says it all comes down to like, we're just all apes that want to be appealing to this opposite sex or to be safe. And like everything we do as consumers is basically driven by these incredibly primal instincts, which I think is true to a point, but as marketers, you have to kind of like be able to kind of move up the pyramid of like human consciousness to get to like the actionable stuff but like this is it's a really interesting one so i read a lot of when it comes to understanding consumer psychology and how to apply that in marketing how to kind of like get how people think i do a lot of reading of specific books on that and there's a really good list i think it's david house david put together a list i think it's openly accessible and so we can find it and share it with your listeners of i think it's like 50 or 60 books that are just awesome for understanding how humans think and why buyers buy and so we'll get that list out so i do a lot of reading but when it comes to understanding you know new tools that i might want to use in marketing or interesting like ways of you know, different writing frameworks that you can pull and use. A lot of that comes from just following great people on Twitter. And I see them sharing articles that they've written or links to things that they're working on, or just like observing how they're interacting and what types of projects they're taking on and what types of posts they're making that are getting a lot of engagement. And so a lot of my learning about what's going to work 
from a execution perspective. It's like you go and you talk to your customers, but then like learning about like what's new and what in what ways might I be able to kind of like apply this to my business? Is there, is there something that I'm not thinking of or not seeing? A lot of that just comes from like being observant and seeing what other people are doing. Who are the top people that you are following that you're getting the most value out of on Twitter? It's tough to say, you know, cause there's so many and for different reasons, like there's the ones that are like probably more well-known in the marketing community or the business community more broadly. So like I, I follow uh, Matthew Kobach, who's just like, you know, like he's a one line machine, like everything he puts out is gold. I follow, um, Oh, how am I blanking on his name? Uh, the author of Atomic Habits, his poster. James Clear. Yeah, James Clear is so good. Amanda, I'm not going to forget her last name, but she's she came kind of got on Twitter around the same time I did and actually started using it actively. Because like I was never that active on Twitter until like maybe a year and a half ago. But Amanda, like, we'll have to put a link to her in the show notes, but she's been incredible. She, she better than most that I've seen anyway, does an incredible job of telling her, her story as a marketer and what's happening in her role that way. And she's recently stepped down from CMO position and she's actually starting up her own company, but she's also a single mom of three and she shares that side of her life too. And to me as a, as a woman and as a, you know, we don't have kids yet, but it's something we want soon. Like it's really nice to see somebody sharing that side of their life as well and talking about the challenges of doing what you do on a day-to-day basis professionally and also having to juggle family life. So I think she does a really great job. Um, Val Geisler, another one who posts a lot of really actionable and useful content and then also shares the ups and downs of of her journey. So Rand Fishkin, Rand's stuff is always gold. Rand does, he shares a lot, but he also shares like the types of research backed articles that he does like he produces a lot of really kind of like exceptional content as does ross simmons and his team at foundation marketing so there's just it's hard to narrow it down because there's so many good ones like there's and they're sharing and what makes them good is different and you know some that are just really funny like renee i think I don't know how to pronounce Renee's last name either, um, but Renee is a marketer based out of New York and she's like, her stuff is hilarious and she mostly tweets about her dating life, but that also like drops like super marketing wisdom. So like, there's just so many great ones. One of my favorite one-liners you always say is niches build riches. And I want to kind of dig into that because I, I think a lot of people don't get the importance of like being niche and like how big a tribe actually i was talking to someone about this today this is a random subject but i just got into disc golf during like this pandemic and there's like a very is a youtube channel just for like their tournaments and Mm -hmm. the tribe there is so big because it's like 300,000 400,000 but you would never know like that the tribe is big if you weren't in that community so it just made me think like that statement is so true, but I, I want to like dive deep into why people should stay niche. Well, I think when you're just getting started in particular, there's no way to be all things to all people. And 
again, like when it comes to your marketing, like I, you can know exactly who your customers are and you can be going after a very concrete niche. Like you could be going after like Brian um, Levesque talks about this a lot. Like he went after like Scrabble jewelry, Scrabble tile jewelry makers. Like that was one of his first internet products. And he sold a book on how to make Scrabble tile jewelry. Like that's incredibly niche. And he did really well with the sales of that book. You can go after an incredibly niche audience, but you still need to understand them, right? You still need to understand what it is that is going to resonate with them, what's going to get them excited, why they buy, what they're motivated by. So I think the reason that people are resistant to going after a niche is that they don't think that you can build a big business by going after a small audience. And that is just so untrue. If you look at the biggest businesses in the world, they all grew out of a very narrow niche. So Facebook, you know, started with Harvard students and then Ivy League schools and then all colleges, then eventually opened up to the general population, but it was like multiple iterations to get there. Amazon, you know, like Jeff Bezos used to pitch Amazon in the boardroom at the very beginning. He'd be like, we're going to be the everything store. One day people will be able to buy everything on Amazon. And we're starting with used books. Like used books is a very unique niche, right? And so... I think even like Apple, you know, Apple, there's this great story of when Steve Jobs, he had been fired from Apple and came back more than a decade later, and they were struggling massively and they were going to be going out of business. And he basically cut 80% of their product line, said like, we're not serving the business market anymore. We're not doing this, 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 this. We are going after digital renegades. We're going after people who are like, kind of like visionary creative types that think different. And it was in going after the designers and the illustrators and the video producers and like those people that they were able to become what they are today. And so I think that people just think, oh, if I go after this small niche, I'm going to miss a lot of opportunities of other people who could buy from me. But in fact, you're going to be able to know exactly where your opportunities are. Because you know, if you sell to bus school drivers in Nebraska, you know exactly where they are. You know exactly what they read. You know what associations they're a part of. Like that is a very narrow focus and you can create a very specific product. And I think that not enough people take the time to identify that niche opportunity because they're afraid they're, they're going to be missing out on something bigger. And it's almost never in marketing the case. It's always, it's much, much easier when you know exactly who you're going after and why they buy. And I think one thing that you say as well that I really like is if you open up a new niche, it's double the learning of new people. It's mm-hmm. double the learning of like assets you have to do, double the work to make more assets. It's double the work of channels you have to do. And I think people don't get that part because I think there's so they're not actually a lot of time they're just not targeting niche like when no. they when they when they go and they're not like messaging to that audience. So they think it's oh it's easy. Like I can mm-hmm. just put this marketing message out and capture a bunch of people, but it's not resonating for a reason because you're not going after that. Oh, absolutely. Like one in my workshops, now my workshops have I have 
primarily done them online, of course, COVID or sorry, in person, but of course, COVID changed that. And a lot of my workshops happen in Atlantic Canada. I haven't done a lot virtually outside of Atlantic Canada, although that is changing. I'm going to start, typically I would go through partners. So I'll work with like an accelerator or a business association and I'll deliver training to their members. But a lot of people who come through my workshops, many of them are small business owners or they're tech startup founders or they're marketers inside of larger companies who don't necessarily have full control over what's going on. So they might have all of the ideas and the energy, but they don't have the control. And then on the other end, you've got, you know, small business owners and and startup founders who don't have the marketing savvy and expertise to be able to know what to do. And so they come through my workshops wanting to understand their customers better, ultimately wanting to get more customers. And when the like one of the very first exercises I do with them is I have this uh, tool called the customer ranking calculator. And this is available on my website. It's a tool that allows you to kind of think about if I was going to go after these four different types of segments, like, you know, three to four different types of segments, like I'm going to rank them on the criteria that really matters as a business, meaning like how big of a transformation can I help them make? How much money are they willing to spend over what period of time? Like how much value do I create for them? Like there's a number of criteria, but it helps them to narrow down their focus. And oftentimes what is so interesting through that workshop is watching them realize that because they haven't been specific about who they're going after, they're just throwing out these messages that are just incredibly vague and oftentimes very self-serving in that it's all about me, me, me. And as soon as they narrow in and they go, okay, like for the, like I get them to work on a persona and, and messaging and go and interview specifically within the segment that they've identified. And as soon as they do that, they suddenly see the messages so clearly. It's like, oh, like I need to say this. Whereas before they were trying to figure out how can I say something that's going to work with anybody who might be in the market for my solution versus how can I say something that's going to be compelling to this audience. And as soon as you know who this audience is, it's so much easier. Yeah. And I think it comes down to like empathy, right? I think a lot of, I think that's a lot of mistakes marketers make is like, they they think they're empathetic, but they actually haven't taken time to learn their customer. And when they don't do that, then like they're just making these assumptions, which is pretty unempathetic because you're just assuming that's the problem that your customer is having. I had this conversation with another marketer the other day, though, and the tricky part is, especially people who are not new to the game, right? If you're like fresh out of school, that I think you're coming out at an interesting time because you recognize how challenging it is to build, to get capture attention and you're open to trying new ways that are now becoming kind of like well adopted around like doing customer interviews, customer research, but people that have been in the world for a while, um, I think back to like my days of running my agency and working in agencies, this expectation that you're going to spend a lot of time with the customer, understanding the customer, it just wasn't done. And it didn't really need to be because oftentimes it wasn't nearly as competitive and marketing was harder to measure. So you didn't know if it was working or not. So clients would just keep paying the bills whether or not it was working. And I think now a lot of those people have a lot harder time transitioning to this more customer-led marketing approach because they've built careers and charged a lot of money and made really big salaries never having done it. And so you tell them, 
oh, by the way, there's this other opportunity that you've been missing out on that you haven't been applying to your work that could really be effective. And it's almost like telling them you've been doing it wrong, right? And that's none of us like that. None of us want to hear that. None of us want to admit that we made mistakes. And so I think that it's probably a lot easier to convince people who are newer and fresher in their career than it is to convince people who've been working in marketing for the past 15, 20, 30, 40 years and saying, there's a way to do this differently that you haven't been doing. And and here's what it is, because they're going to go, our campaigns work, our clients are happy. And in many cases, they maybe are, right? Because like they have the product is really good product market fit, like they're an established brand, people know and trust them. But when you're trying to bring something new to market and find an audience for it, you just can't rely on your gut. Like you really need to do the work. Which is kind of crazy to me because if you go back and look at like the top marketing books from like 50, 60 years ago, understanding your audience is like the common theme in all of them, which is crazy to think about like that. Like they probably were just skating by because of the less and less competition that they had. And now it's becoming more and more. And then they just didn't have to do that step. But it's crazy that it's been around. People have been shouting it for a hundred years. Just people haven't been listening. I think that that people weren't listening to one extent. And then also it wasn't very actionable. Like I remember reading all of these books, like every marketer, every like, marketing tactic that you are that every kind of like marketing advice is always comes with the kind of like before they give the advice they say so first you need to understand your audience and then and they get into like the tactical thing or the advice that they're going to give but the problem is that the whole first you need to understand your audience thing is always rushed over and there wasn't a really good tactical way to do it like and we've been trying lots of different things there's been surveys there's been market research there's been focus groups there i mean marketers have applied a lot of different things but you know personas but oftentimes they were they were being done in a way that wasn't always that helpful because you know you can sit down and put your mock up for your new let's say like headphones in front of a focus group and get all of them to talk about it and what they like and what they don't. And there might be some actionable stuff that comes out of that, but it could also really lead you astray. And there's been so many products that have been designed by focus group and failed or marketing campaigns that have been led by focus groups and failed because what people think and what they do is so different. And so when I discovered Jobs to Be Done and more particular, this process of interviewing people who have recently bought something, that was the aha moment for me. Because I was like, oh, that's the thing. Like, that's the answer. It's not about just talking to people who might be the audience and asking them for their opinions. Because like, while that could be valuable, it could still send you in the wrong direction. And then you get frustrated and you feel like people don't know what they want. But if you actually talk to people who are buying and you don't ask them about your product specifically, or you don't make that the center of the conversation and you want to understand the buying journey, well, that's where all the actual really good stuff is. But this was, I don't think it was until recently that it was really popularized. I mean, the book that Clayton Christensen wrote, Competing Against Luck, that came out in 2016. So this is work that Bob Molesta and his team that has brought to Clayton Christensen since the 90s. But I don't think it was popularized or well-known. And it's now spreading like wildfire through the product community, more specifically like the software product community, and beginning to emerge as really a dominant thing in, in marketing. But I think it's only because people 
didn't have access to it before. We all wanted to understand our customers and we were all trying, like we were all buying the data, following the clicks, like, you know, doing the surveys, but it just wasn't leading us to really actionable insight. And this method really does. That, that's so true. I didn't think about like the, like not many of them go into like in depth on how to do it. Um, some like tell you like how to think about it. Think about the person on the other side, like what are their biggest fears? And they never like hound, like talk, talk, talk to them. Uh, they don't really tell you how to get that information, which is why a lot of like times I remember sitting in boardrooms and planning out campaigns for clients that we were going to spend a lot of their money. And yeah, you thought you were being empathetic. You were like, okay, so like the audience for this is like, you know, women in their seventies. And so suddenly the conversation goes, yeah, well, my aunt and like, you know, she thinks like this, it's like, yeah, yeah, my grandmother. And like, so like you're biasing it based on your own perception of that audience. People thought they were doing it right. And they thought they were taking a customer led approach, but it often just didn't lead them in an actionable direction. So true. Um, I want to go into a couple more things before we wrap up. And one of them is, what is an underrated marketing skill? I think that customer interviews is, is what I would say is the most underrated because it will give you a lot of the details that are going to help propel other things. And it is a skill. The first time you do it, you're going to be bad at it. Like the first time you wrote a sales email or the first time you had to get on a call with somebody and try to pitch them or the first job interview you did. Like very few people are just naturally good at it out of the gate. And so I'd say that it's a skill that you need to work on it because a lot of people aren't good at it out of the gate. They do a couple and then they're kind of like, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. So I would say that's a skill that more marketers should work on. But once you... Once you start to see the type of insight you can get, you become hooked. And it's like, of course, I'm going to do this. Cool. What about an overrated marketing skill? There's nothing that I can really think of being overrated in the sense that like, it always depends on your business, right? So like, we all get hyped up about things that we probably shouldn't get hyped up about. Like, everyone's like, oh my goodness, like, you know, automated email nurture sequences or like, you know, we get pumped about like, you know, reels are the next big thing. And like, I'm going to spend all my focus on reels. Like, I think that a lot of marketers are too tactical and they think about the channels and the tools and the output more than they think about why they're deploying those. And so I'd say that I'd say there's nothing that's overrated, but you need to know why you're doing it. Something might be new and shiny or something might be said to be the most important thing. And it's all in the context of what actually matters to you and the business you're supporting. The next question I have is like, I know, I think I know the answer that you're going to give, but what are most marketers doing wrong? I think most marketers are making too many assumptions. I think we are victims to being clever and being and being able to convince ourselves and others that what we're doing is right. And we're letting our guts lead as opposed to letting customers lead. Then the last question I have is, what is a marketing phrase you would put on a billboard? Mm, whoever gets closer to the customer wins. I love that. And the last bit I want to leave for you to tell people where they could find you and any resources you have for them. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. I mean, I say I'm, most, I'm super active on Twitter and I love connecting with other people there, especially other marketers. So you can find me there at, at Kate Bohr, so K-A-T-E-B-O-U-R. And aside from that, if you're interested in the tool that I mentioned, the customer ranking calculator, you can grab that at customercamp.co forward slash calculator. 
And if you're just more generally interested in what we're doing at Customer Camp, then you can just visit our website, customercamp.co, not .com, .co. Cool. This has been super awesome. So much knowledge here. Looking forward to more tweets from you and um, learning more from you. But I think the audience is going to get some fire from this episode. So thank you so much. Thank you. Well, it's been a blast being on and getting to finally talk in person. Yep. Thank you. 